Welcome to Special Briefing, where we dig into how states, cities, and counties are faring since COVID-19 arrived, and how decisions made in Washington are impacting their response. We're brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. And now, please join Special Briefing. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Bill Glasgow, Senior Vice President and Director of State and Local Initiatives at the Volcker Alliance. And welcome to our second special briefing, which the Volcker Alliance is doing in partnership with the Penn Institute for Urban Research. My regular co-host, Susan Walker, co-director of Penn IUR, can't be with us today. She'll be back next week. So welcome to you all once again. Good morning, everyone. And we have a terrific lineup today. We're going to talk today about what kind of stress states are experiencing right now, states and localities as well, and also how well states are prepared to withstand this stress in terms of rainy day fund and other reserves. That's a very important buffer. Our expert panel today are Dan White, Director of Government Consulting and Fiscal Policy Research at Moody's Analytics. Dan does the annual Moody's stress testing, the state's reports, and you will find on your conference dashboard a copy of the latest one that just came out a few days ago, which you are welcome to download now or later. We also have Catherine Barrett and Richard Green from Barrett and Green, our special project consultants and authors of the Volcker Alliance's terrific Rainy Day Fund Strategies special working paper that came out last year before the coronavirus mess, but tells you a lot about how much the states have and how the states go about taking money out and putting that money back in someday. We're going to discuss that. And we're also joined by Scott Pattison, who many of you know. Scott is the former executive director of the National Governors Association and former executive director of the National Association of State Budget Officers, or NASBO, and now is a fellow with an institute at the University of Ottawa in Canada. Scott is going to bring a unique point of view, having been a budget officer himself in Virginia, having worked with the budget officers in all 50 states and the governors, not an easy crowd to handle. So I'm going to turn the virtual podium over to Dan White in a second. But first, just a couple of housekeeping notes. We have taken a bunch of your questions in advance that you sent in on the conference forum or email. We'll be getting to those. We've allowed plenty of time for discussion. So hang in there and we'll have full contact information at the end of this if you want to follow up with any of us. So Dan is going to talk about stress testing the states, how well the states are prepared, how bad things can get. We had a really, a really tough unemployment claims number today, 4.4 million. So we're up to at least 26 million people who have filed for claims, plus all those people who couldn't get into the system. We may have reached the peak of the surge, but we're certainly nowhere near the end of this, nor are we near the end of the coronavirus epidemic or shutdown. So Dan, all yours. Thanks so much, Bill. I appreciate you guys inviting me to be here today. Before I speak, I do need to give a bit of a disclaimer. If you've heard me speak before, you'll probably have this one memorized as well. But I work for Moody's Analytics, which is an entirely separate company from Moody's Investor Service. So please don't let anything I say today be misconstrued as having any bearing on past, current, or future ratings actions. Apologies for the disclaimer at the outset, but it keeps me out of trouble. What I did want to talk to you about today, outside of ratings, obviously, is the immense amount of economic stress that states and local governments are undergoing right now. And some of the work that we have done to translate that economic stress 
into a rough order of magnitude of the fiscal stress that states are, are probably either already experiencing or about to experience. That work is part of, as Bill mentioned, some work that we have done annually for several years now called stress testing states. Really, what we have been big proponents of for you know the better part of a decade now is states in particular, but also local governments should be stress testing their budgets for potential changes in the business cycle. That is the most effective way that they have at their disposal to really prepare and survive through a recession without having to make extraordinary fiscal changes like uh, having to raise taxes or cut spending. What we have found in our past work is that the average state should have in their rainy day reserve fund about 12% or so of their general fund spending put away for a recession to get through, again, a moderate recession, what we would term, you know, a quote unquote normal recession, think like a 1991 recession in terms of order of magnitude. The problem that we are facing today is that the recession that we're facing is certainly not something that is a moderate recession or the normal order of magnitude. And it's actually even well beyond the severe stress scenarios that we have normally put states through in the past. And so the number that we're seeing for the average states to get through the next recession or the current recession, depending on how you know, the Bureau of Economic Research wants to define it, is probably on the order of magnitude of 17 to 23%. So you're probably wondering how we came up with those numbers, so I'll give you a little bit of background. The two scenarios that we used for this paper, which again is attached to the resources here and was released last week, they are our baseline COVID-19 scenario, and then we have a more severe scenario. The outlook for the economy is really determined right now by the length of the business closures and travel restrictions that are put in place. So the virus itself is really driving the train here. And as much as you know, we as economists hate to uh, be dictated to by uh, somebody else, the epidemiologists are really the ones who are, who are determining how long this recession ultimately lasts. The baseline forecast that we have assumes you know, record high unemployment in the second quarter of this year and assumes that most of the travel restrictions and the business closures that are currently in place begin to expire in the course of May. And by the beginning of June, anybody who already has those travel restrictions in place has more or less lifted the majority of them. One thing that's very clear that maybe we didn't appreciate even a month ago when we were putting some of these scenarios together is that this is not going to be instantly plug back the economy, right? Plug in the economy. It's going to be a very step procedure. It's going to be a very gradual process. And so one of the things that we've had to adjust for in our, in our scenarios is we've had to basically have those travel restrictions roll off gradually over time. The baseline assumes, again, that that really you know, is more or less completed by the end of the second quarter. The more severe scenario that we talk about in the paper, our, our normal S3, if you're familiar with our economic scenarios, is much more significant. We have much higher unemployment. We have a peak of about 17%, 18% over the average of a quarter, with you know individual months being much higher than that. And we really have tremendous long-term damage to the economy to the point where it takes probably six or seven years for us to regain all of the jobs that are being lost as a result of that. Under that scenario, it's really consistent with the economy more or less coming back online in the third quarter of this year. So those travel restrictions, those business closures don't really start to peel off in earnest until June, July, maybe even August of this coming year, if that makes sense. All right? So two very dark scenarios, one darker than the other, but unfortunately relatively plausible given that what we're seeing with the, the COVID-19 scenario assumptions. 
Now, the one thing that comes out of this, again, in addition to the immense amount of stress, is a tremendously wide distribution of potential outcomes across states. So I, I mentioned earlier that in a normal recession, the average state needs about 12% of its rainy day reserve fund put away, or its budget put away in a rainy day reserve fund. The other thing that we've really found as a result of these studies is that there's no such thing as an average state. So the distribution is immensely wide. The largest, you know, out there state, the biggest amount of fiscal stress that we would expect to see is in Alaska and a lot of the other energy states. And that's not surprising given the massive decline in oil prices that we've seen the other day. Just the other day, we had negative oil prices, which I don't think is anything that it almost seems like a physics thought exercise. It doesn't feel like something that's real in the, in the terms of economics, but it's something that we're facing and, and something that those energy states are going through. Now, the good news for those energy states, though, is that they've seen this movie before. They know how it ends. They have massive rainy day funds, some of the largest rainy day funds in the country. And so they're going to be relatively okay when we go through a lot of this stress because they're used to absorbing this amount of economic volatility. Now, the problem is we have a number of other states who are very high on the list of the level of fiscal stress who are not normally on that part of the list, okay? They're not energy states. They're states that either have a very high reliance on leisure and hospitality, finance, some of the other industries that are really being hit hardest by this downturn, and they're states who have relatively volatile tax structures, and their states who are really kind of at the epicenter of this COVID-19 crisis in terms of the number of infections and the exposure rate. So, for example, states like New York and New Jersey, which are normally not at the top of the list in terms of the exposure to financial volatility or fiscal volatility, very much are so in these scenarios. And so you see upwards of 25 to 30% stress on their budgets when we run them through the stress test. And what that means is basically the, the combination of revenue declines and spending increases that result from the economic scenarios we're putting through these models results in roughly a quarter to a third of their budget disappearing overnight. So these numbers I should specify, by the way, assume basically that's what's needed for states to go out to at the end of fiscal 2021. There's significantly additional stress if we go out beyond 2021. So in the aggregate, what this means is that states have roughly under the more severe scenarios, about $200 billion worth of a hole to fill to get through fiscal 2021 without having to significantly increase taxes or cut spending, which is, again, unprecedented in terms of the scope of the whole. It's a little over 20% of overall general fund budgets. If we add on to that about $150 billion worth of COVID-specific expenses, which is the best estimate that we've been able to get out of some of our sources in the healthcare industry and, and certain governor's offices, that gives you a total shortfall through the end of fiscal 2021 of about $350 billion. Now, if we were to go out beyond that to you know 2022, you add roughly about $100 billion to that. So you're looking at almost $450 billion in overall need for states alone. That doesn't include the hit to local governments. If we look at the resources that states have on hand to fight that, the encouraging thing is that states have never been better prepared for a recession in the aggregate. So they've got about $72 billion in rainy day funds sitting around waiting for an opportunity just like this. The catch, though, and I'm sure that Green are going to talk about this very soon, is that the average state is not allowed to plug all 100% of its rainy day reserves into that breach, nor should it. If from an economic standpoint, they're probably going to want to keep some powder 
dry just in case we have to go to fiscal 2022 or even fiscal 2023 without significant assistance from the federal government. If we look at the other resources they have available, if you look at the CARES Act, about $110 billion of that went to states, the rest going towards our local governments for COVID-specific expenses, so ventilators, masks, et cetera. And then you add in about $35 billion from the second stimulus bill, which increased the FMAP percentage. You've got about $180 billion. If you assume that states only plug about half of their reserves in, you end up with about $180 billion worth of resources to fight a $350 billion need. So on that order of magnitude, the federal government would need to plug holes of 200 to $300 billion in additional assistance to states to avoid having to have massive budget cuts and potential shortfalls going into next year. So if you add local government needs on top of that, you kind of get roughly to the four or $500 billion number that's been thrown around in Washington right now. I want to point out very quickly before I hand this back over to Bill, though, that the idiosyncrasies from one state to another are really unbelievable. So those states who are going to make out of this okay, they're going to see relatively small, they use the word relatively underlined here, relatively small fiscal corrections of 5 to 10% of their budgets. But you have some states who are going to see upwards of 30, 40% of their budgets in need of repairing. And that is so far beyond anything that we've seen before in terms of the drastic fiscal actions that states are going to have to make that it really you know, defies explanation. So in addition to your normal spending cuts, your furloughs of workers, et cetera, I mean, you're talking about the potential curtailment of public services and how they're delivered. So the need here is immense. And without additional help from Washington, D.C., the potential economic cost of all of the actions that states and local governments are going to have to make could really be incredible and could really hamstring the eventual recovery from this for years to come. So with all of that sunshine and rainbow predictions out of the way, Bill, I'll hand it back over to you. Well, thank you, Dan. I'm not sure I should thank you, but we need to get the bad news out there and up front. You know, state and local governments account for 20% of U.S. GDP. So that in itself, the crisis in the state and local sector is going to be a drag on the economy for some time unless we figure out a way out. Rich and Catherine, you wrote the book literally on rainy day funds, and you know the rules. Dan alluded to uh, states not necessarily spending it all down all at once. I recall during the last recession, Georgia drained its rainy day fund in half a year, and that was in much, much less severe a situation than we're in now. So, you know, what are you hearing? What are states going to do? And are, are rainy day funds a last line of defense or a first line of defense? I I think that for the states that are better managed, they're kind of co-equal. They're certainly part of the equation. We went through uh, the states to see what they had done with their uh, with the rainy day funds, and and as Dan alluded to, um, when we did the report for Volcker about uh, rainy day funds, about rainy day fund strategies, they were at an all-time high in aggregate, and I believe at an all-time high in in almost every state, if not every state. That was ten months ago. There's more money in their coffers to buffer what's hit us now uh, than there would have been at any point in the past. And they are, in fact, using it. Um, just a few examples, because we've, we've got it for all the states. But Arizona specifically appropriated up to $55 million from their budget stabilization fund to the public health agencies fund to pay the expenses of public health emergency responses following specifically COVID-19. Arkansas 
actually established its own separate COVID-19 mini-day fund, which transferred $173 million from the General Allotment uh, Reserve Fund to provide for, again, to provide for appropriations to offset the revenue reductions and address the needs created by the coronavirus. It goes on and on. Maryland uh, passed a bill a little while ago allowing the governor to transfer by budget amendment up to $50 million from the revenue stabilization account to fund costs associated with the coronavirus. It does, however, require the governor to provide the legislative policy committee with about seven days for review and comment before transferring funds for the account. Meanwhile, he's calling the act an emergency measure. The bad news is there's a lot of bad news. The good news is we've probably never been better prepared thanks to the long-term economic expansion to deal with that. Bill mentioned, and this is in the report, we listed a number of action points divided into two areas, divided into uh, action points for renewing rainy day funds, for putting uh, more money in, and action points that were sort of guidelines for what to do when it came time to take uh, withdrawals out. And the states have, mostly in statute, sometimes in the Constitution, sometimes just by practice, they all have rules as to where the rainy day funds should be going to. They're all pretty much allowed, if, particularly if the governor uh, makes an emergency declaration, to use an emergency, even if the emergency is not spelled out specifically in the legislation. And right now, probably the most critical of the action points was we suggested that people limit reserve withdrawals to stretch out the cash, which is exactly what Dan was just talking about. It would be a temptation to solve all your problems where you were a state, or as many as you could, by just draining the whole rainy day fund and getting you through this year. Since undoubtedly there's going to be need for more money in years to come, you want to find other routes. Because while the rainy day fund can help sustain spending and, and keep balanced budgets through downturns, they're probably going to have to turn to spending cuts or other actions to preserve cash and until the revenues improve. We mentioned in, in, in the report, just as one good example, that even though Colorado doesn't have a formally designated rainy day fund, its general fund reserve balance serves the same purpose. It's just a matter of nomenclature. And the governor must cut general fund spending in half if more of the reserve balance will be used in a fiscal year. The goal of the restriction is to preserve at least half of the reserve fund's statutorily required balance for future use. They're kind of an extreme case, but they're making sure that this money lasts and a bunch of other states are doing much the same kind of thing, I think it might be worthwhile very quickly to hit on a couple of the other uh, action points we listed for withdrawals, and then I'm going to hand it over to Catherine for uh, putting money in. We kind of flipped a coin, and she got the harder job, because right now I don't know that anybody is putting any money in. It's clear that the states have needed, and those that have had this will be better off now. There's clear rules to govern withdrawals so that they will not be able to just use this as a slush fund, but rather as a rainy day fund against either economic downturns or, as is is the case now, uh, emergencies. And also, we warned against guarding against frivolous fund use. For example, uh, North Carolina allows using the savings reserve account, and the words they use are extraordinary circumstances. But those are undefined and only pass if two-thirds of the members present and voting in both legislative houses approve the withdrawal. So that kind of protects them even now from way overspending. And with that, let me turn it over to uh, Catherine. Yeah, thanks, Rich. 
Well, I think you're right. I think that while this is a time to use and not replenish rainy day funds, but it is worth noting that the states that are in the best shape have really actively and consistently adhered to policies from putting money back into their rainy day funds when it has been removed. After the last Great Recession, um, that was very tough for a lot of states to do. It took them a long time to do it. So in a normal recession, I think they would be very careful about spending the money. And I think in this case, you know, all bets are off. We gave a, a lot of credit in looking at the statutes to states that took volatility into account in replenishing their rainy day funds. As Dan said, the oil states are in a particularly difficult situation, and they do have the largest rainy day funds, and certainly most of them have statutory guidelines to take some of those very volatile taxes that come in from oil money and stock them away for a rainy day. How far that goes, you know, who knows. But other states are also doing that. For example, California after having terrible, terrible budget problems in the last recession and sort of ongoing problems through the years because of its volatile revenues, really changed some of its rules so that it's very volatile. Progressive income tax and uh, capital gains tax money, if it comes in above a certain level, I think it's 8%, part of that money gets put into the rainy day fund. And you could see how difficult it was to build that fund back. And they did. It was zero for many years after the last recession. In 2015, it was $406 million. It's been built up, the reserve fund and, and a couple of other smaller reserves was built up to $19.2 billion at the end of fiscal 19. So it just shows how important it is to have those policies to build that money up. But now, you know, how far this goes, who knows? I'll turn it back to Bill. Well, thank you, Catherine and Rich. The Rainy Day Fund Strategies report is up there with the conference resources in your conference dashboard, along with the Moody's Analytics Stress Testing States report. I'm going to turn the mic over to Scott Patterson, who I mentioned before has had a unique set of qualifications on his resume. He's seen it from the budget office. He's seen it from the governor's perspective. He's seen it from the national budget office perspective. Virginia, your your home state, just had a special, I think, unprecedented one-day legislative session yesterday. So right now, other than throw stuff out of the balloon to keep the balloon from crashing, what are governors and budget directors telling you? What are they doing to get through this? Well, thanks, Bill. And I, I'm so pleased to be on this with some really fantastic colleagues and yourself. I have been talking to state officials from across the country, and the word unprecedented really does apply to this particular crisis. There's such concern about the uncertainty as to how things will be laid out in terms of fiscally dealing with the impacts of dealing with the COVID-19 virus. One thing that I think is particularly important at this time, though, and I think we're all seeing it as we see media reports, is the incredible importance of state and local government officials in dealing with this type of a crisis. And I want to point out that states are sovereign under the Constitution, and it's really important to understand that they have these responsibilities and they are at the front line of dealing with something as difficult as this crisis right now. Now, as astonishing and as quick 
as these revenue declines and the resulting budget shortfalls have been, there is a template for dealing with this type of a fiscal crisis. Unfortunately, in some states, this will probably be in percentage terms worse than they've ever seen in decades. But that template is dealing with disasters, which governors, mayors, other state officials have planned for years in terms of dealing with something like a hurricane coming through, forest fires, and they learned from the past economic downturns like the Great Recession, the early 90s recession, the downturn in 0102. And so they do have this template, but what's unfortunate is the response fiscally we know based on what we've seen in the past is that it's gonna be very painful. Some of the federal dollars through the stimulus, the rainy day funds as Catherine Rich and Dan have talked about will be very helpful. But we can expect furloughs, layoffs, across the board budget cuts. These are the type of things that budget officers have been talking about and will recommend because there's simply no other way to deal with such, again, an astonishing quick decline in revenue. The other thing that we've seen in the past, and I know will be the case here during this crisis, is to try to maintain funding levels for K through 12 and also partly because most of it is in effect required, they're going to try to keep spending on Medicaid. Now, the problem is for states who are gonna see the most severe revenue declines, it may be very difficult without additional federal help to maintain the spending that they need to maintain K through 12 and other really important services in healthcare and in other areas. They may not be able to sustain even some minimal services that they provide to the citizens and the residents of their state. So I think that's really critically important to be aware of how severe this is and how difficult this will be to deal with. The other thing I want to point out that is often overlooked, and frankly, at the federal level, a lot of folks over the years have not I think, been able to really appreciate. And that is at the state and local level, it's a zero sum game. And what comes in is what you can spend. You can adjust that by increasing or decreasing taxes. But the amount of revenue coming in is pretty much what they have to spend. Of course, there's complexity and nuance to that. But they simply do not have the tools a federal government does in terms of Federal Reserve, being able to deficit spend, to the extent that they do at the federal level. And I think it's really important to understand that this is a zero sum game. And what you're seeing as the state fiscal officers, the de facto CFOs of the states and localities, they're going to have to make some incredibly difficult decisions over the next few months because of such a severe decline and quick decline in the revenue. The silver lining here is that perhaps if we don't have as severe a crisis as the severe forecast in the Moody's analytics, different scenarios, that revenue will start to pick up in a few months and you'll start to see that trajectory change. And if states plan well for that and are continuing to be fiscally prudent, while this will be a very painful period, it may not be as long a painful period as we've seen in other recessions like the Great Recession. 
Well, thank you for that note of hope in all the, the gloom, Scott. As we know, it's a very difficult period. I want to remind you, number one, the resources that are posted to the conference app, and we will also have them posted along with the, a recording of this and past events at our website, volkeralliance.org, V-O-L-C-K-E-R, alliance, all one word, .org. And I'll remind you about that before we close as well. Let's go to the questions. The first one is uh, is inevitable, and then I want to get to a bunch of questions about plugging deficits and one other one from a local official in our audience. But the inevitable question is yesterday, the Senate Republican leader, Mitch McConnell, said he thought that the state should be allowed to go bankrupt. There are legal hurdles, constitutional hurdles, political hurdles. Is that a possible option down the road? I'll let anybody who wants to jump in and, and take that. Well, I have to tell you, I don't have any special insight as to whether that's really a possibility, but it would seem to me just from common sense that before anybody could allow, assuming that there was the, the allowance of states to go bankrupt, which again is, is, is maybe a dubious notion, they'd have to empty the rainy day funds out entirely because you can't go bankrupt while you've got money in the bank. Well, that's a good point. And, and there are there is something called the Tenth Amendment to the Constitution. There's many states, about 20 odd, I forget the exact number, that don't even allow municipalities to go bankrupt in their jurisdiction. So there are hurdles to overcome. The majority leader also didn't point out that his own home state has the either the worst or the second worst funded state pension system of any in the country. It's a problem in his home state as well. I'm going to take a question from a, a, a local official in Pennsylvania. I'm going to give everybody uh, the benefit of anonymity here. And I think Scott's the one who probably would feel that. And the, the question is, do leaders in Congress and leaders in the White House really understand the needs of local government, especially small municipalities of the, the 1,000 to 2,500 variety, and, and also the states? Do they really understand the needs of the states when they're writing policy, even in a, in a cataclysmic event like this. Scott, you, you want to start on that? Yeah, I think, Bill, on the one hand, a lot of the officials, they do travel or they're members of Congress or the Senate. So they're back in their states, they're back in their localities, and they understand the pain that is being suffered. I think where the concern I have, and I felt this way for years and years in my career, having dealt with so many federal officials, the lack of understanding is on the financial management side. I think they tend to see the state and local fiscal situation similar to the way the federal government is. And as I mentioned before, the federal government has a lot more tools. It's a national government. And it's more of a zero-sum game at the state and local level. And I don't think that's really appreciated. And frankly, the other thing that I don't think is appreciated is there seems to be among some federal folks, and this has been true for years, that states and locals are sitting on lots of money. And that's actually not the case. Again, it's a zero-sum game. You want them to be fiscally prudent and build up things like rainy day funds. So one shouldn't be critical of that. And they have to maintain their taxes based on partly ability to pay economic conditions and the services that they want to provide. So they're definitely not sitting around flush with cash. And finally, I'll say, it. I think, again, what is so important to understand is they have critically important responsibilities for the residents of their locality or state. 
And I think we have to be careful about talking about something like bankruptcy. We shouldn't really be discussing that. We want to make sure that we're not opening and unlocking the prisons and letting violent offenders out. There are just too many responsibilities that state and local government provides that are important and should not be forgotten. Well put. I want to turn to a, a rainy day fund question. Well, actually, we have a bunch of rainy day fund questions. Some of the concern borrowing, which I'll get to in a, in a second. We have a question from Arizona. The question wonders about a rainy day funds. How could rainy day funds be used to prevent cuts to intergovernment transfers, which in some states are key to sales tax revenue? which, by the way, is collapsing. That might be a question for Scott that's a rather technical question, but an important one. Well, I think that basically, for the most part, there's quite a bit of flexibility in dealing with the funds from a budgeting standpoint. And obviously, and Rich and Catherine know so much about this, there are restrictions on the rainy day funds. But money is fungible as to how they do the overall budget. So it really would depend on the state. I think what the real answer to the question is, it's not directly related to the impact of the rainy day fund. I think it does come down to the choices that at the state level, the elected officials will make in determining how much funds they want to provide into those intergovernmental funds and how much they want to cut. And in the past, we've seen, unfortunately, I think you will see states make those choices regardless of whether they can use rainy day funds to offset certain other funds. I think you're going to see these transfers cut, especially in those states with the most severe decline in revenue. Yeah, I would add to that. This is Catherine. Based on what is not practically possible, but what is politically inevitable, it feels like Historically, states have not been very eager to help the local governments when they have problems of their own. And as we've discussed, they have plenty of their problem of problems of their own right now. I wouldn't be optimistic at all to see uh, about seeing rainy day fund money going to local governments from the state level, and they'll certainly need it. Another thing that we haven't talked about really at all, but has you know always been the case in recessions, is that the expenditures go up just as the revenues go down, as more people get employed and more people are on Medicaid, and that's going to be you know just another big challenge for states to deal with. Bill, if it's okay with you, I want to just tack on for 45 seconds to what Catherine just said, which is that in in doing this report, we went through the rules in whatever form they took for, as I said before, withdrawals and, and re- reimbursements of the funds. And as best as Catherine and I can remember, and we went through the notes, so I'm pretty sure this is accurate, there was not one state that had as a use for its rainy day funds helping localities. So it's in none of their rules and bylaws. Yeah, it might not forbid it, but it didn't. Right, it might uh, not forbid it, but it doesn't say, as many of them do, many of them talk about a certain kind of economic downturn. And, and they don't and talk about localities specifically. We should note that even in this, the recent recovery, many states were still shifting costs onto county school boards and cities to balance the budget. And that comes from directly shifting costs, like California did a few years ago, moving uh, certain prisoners from the state system to the county system, and indirectly by, by reducing aid, as Dan alluded to. 
And that gets me to a whole series of questions on borrowing. I'm going to start with a question from someone from the, the New York State Senate. New York is a state with a, a fairly small rainy day fund, but also other liquid reserves, but a small rainy day fund uh, in terms of percentage of general fund spending. So maybe this is for Dan. What, what, what options should states with limited rainy day funds look to at times like this, assuming the feds don't bail us out and trying to avoid borrowing? I'll just add to that question the budget that the legislature enacted in New York for the April 1st fiscal year contains $11 billion in short-term borrowing that possibly could be rolled over. So, you know, what, what options do states have? That's a great question, Bill, and one that a lot of folks are asking right now. In terms of borrowing, to Scott's point from earlier, the reason that state budgets are really a zero-sum game is that they're not, you know, for all practical purposes, permitted to borrow for operations. And obviously, there's some nuance and some some loopholes in that, but, you know, they're not going out and issuing a bunch of bonds like the federal government is to, to cover operating expenses. However, they do have some options in terms of some project funds. As a, there is plenty of cash sitting around, but a lot of it is devoted to specific reasons or it's earmarked for specific purposes, especially around infrastructure projects and especially around some of those large issues like that. What we have seen in other states is some states will use those, uh, if they cash fund a lot of their infrastructure projects or they put you know, money aside for infrastructure without borrowing against it, they will sweep that money out of those funds into the general fund, and then they will issue bonds to pay for something that could be bonded for instead of using cash to do so. So a lot of states will use that almost as a working reserve where they've gone through and they've tried to cash fund infrastructure projects in the past. Now, if it's a state that hasn't tried to do that kind of funding in the past, they're really in, in hard space for, for borrowing, they're going to have to make budget cuts. And the only way to really do that in a way that's going to set you up for success down the road is you have to, as Scott mentioned earlier, really be thinking about those cuts from a long-term perspective. You don't want to be cutting off your nose to spite your face. You want to be investing in education and in workforce development and those kind of things, things that are, you're going to need when the recovery happens because everybody loses in recessions, but there are definite winners when it comes to recovery. The easiest way to win during a recovery is to focus on those, everything is bad, but the things that are the least bad and things that set you up best for winning that recovery. That's a very good point. And that gets us to another one. Uh, it's a whole series of questions on borrowing. By coincidence or not, the $500 billion hole that Dan referred to is about the size of the, or the current authorization for Federal Reserve purchases of municipal securities. We saw them start with very short-term securities. They've now been able to buy slightly longer-term, short-term securities to help bridge cash flow gaps, and they're working on a plan for longer-term securities. So, number one, can states use this funding to balance the budget in short-term? Can this revenue be used to offset some of that hole that Dan has estimated? Or do the balanced budget requirements that states have, and they differ widely from state to state, do the balanced budget requirements preclude going to the Fed window to plug anything but short-term cash flow deficits? I think that brings up a really good distinction, Bill, and that's the difference between the cash shortfalls that are about to occur and the budget shortfalls that are about to occur. There are a bunch of states out there who are very cash poor at the moment because this time of year, going into February, March, is when states are usually at their bottom, their ebb in terms of the, the amount of cash they have in the bank because they're waiting for those personal income tax payments to come in in, in March and April and May. 
And that's when they're really flush with cash. And, and from a cash perspective, they're really moving some things around and, and making themselves whole for the rest of the year. Because federal government and as a result, most states have moved their tax deadline back to July or even later in some instances, that is going to create a huge cash crunch for many states who are not very liquid and you know, have to extend that out to the local governments and the territories as well. They're in for some real issues in terms of cash. And the best run states, you know, the best credit ratings are going to be able to find places to borrow short term, whether it's through revenue anticipation notes or through short term borrowing from their state treasurer or from local sources. But those states who are not maybe in good position to do that or maybe don't have the highest credit rating, they're going to have real trouble. And that they're the ones who are going to have to really depend on the Fed to potentially get them out of this in the local governments as well. So the cash perspective is really, I think, where the, the Federal Reserve comes in in terms of, of hitting those holes. The longer term budget shortfalls that are going to result from this, they're not really going to hit their peak. They're going to until next year, probably, especially as we get into this time around next year, you get into you know March and April when personal income taxes come due based off of tax year 2020 incomes for folks. That's when the year-over-year declines are really going to be at their peak, even though sales taxes will have come back a little bit. And so that's when the longer term you know, borrowing for operations comes into effect. And that is at least so far beyond the Federal Reserve's mandate to make whole. And, and in many cases, even if the Federal Reserve was willing to buy bonds in that instance, the states are not, in most cases, permitted to issue those kind of bonds for borrowing over several fiscal years. And so that's a much bigger issue, but it's an important distinction to make. Very true. Scott, you know, you've been in the in the driver's seat. So tell me your perspective on this. Well, yeah, it's really fascinating because in any of the other downturns, at least since the early 90s, you only had under five, maybe three to five states that actually had to borrow for any type of operating type of expenses. And the fact that states, even of Virginia, which normally wouldn't even consider such a thing, is considering some short-term borrowing for cash flow purposes, they actually have asked the legislature to allow for that, tells me this is really a severe downturn. Now, the good thing is that you do have governors and financial officials planning for such a case. Now, I will say I'm relatively optimistic a lot of states will be able to manage their cash flow because many of them are able to use intergovernmental funds. So, There are funds that they do have to replace. They may be certain reserves for the building of uh, transportation networks or something like that. But there may be enough cash in all of the different funds at the state level for them to do inter-fund transfers, at least temporarily, to deal with either cash flow or other operating shortfalls. But I think you will see an unprecedented number over the next 12 to 18 months of states and certainly localities doing something they rarely do, which is to go outside of their own governmental funds to actually borrow primarily for cash flow purposes. Good point. A related question is where do public pension investment losses and unfunded pension liability growth fit into the fiscal shock calculations? From what I've I've seen, we haven't closed out the June fiscal year yet for most states, so we don't really know what the losses will be. Most pension funds smooth their losses and gains out over a several-year period. 
So you're not going to see pension funds asking for increased contributions beyond what was already planned for another year or even more. So Dan, when when you're looking at your doing your fiscal modeling, how do pensions and and OPEB, that's retiree healthcare, other post-employment benefits, how do those big deficits and investment returns figure into your calculations? Well, Bill, I think you you articulated it very nicely. I mean, when we do our stress test, we actually included pensions in our 2018 stress test because we had gotten so many questions about it. What we found was that the actual impact, the near-term impact in terms of fiscal stress is very mild, if, if anything at all, from pensions because, as you mentioned, they're spread out over such a long period of time, and they're amortized out over such a long period of time, that you're not going to see a, a massive increase in terms of the necessary contributions all in one year. And even if we were to see you know, a massive increase in contributions, I think states and local governments have made it very clear that they can and will forego those payments if necessary to maintain balanced budgets. So they're not really a mandatory payment in the strict sense that something like Medicaid, which has to go out the door is. However, what this does do from a long-term perspective is it obviously increases long-term liabilities to the extent that those asset values don't come back as quickly as maybe some people would hope they would. What I think this really makes the biggest difference is in the handful of states that are really suffering from pension and OPEB crises. As you mentioned, you know, Kentucky earlier, Illinois, New Jersey, my fair commonwealth of Pennsylvania here. There are some states who are in real trouble. And again, this may be only a handful of states, maybe five or six total. But in those instances, what were issues that policymakers may have thought they had 20, 30 years to sort out. They may now have five to 10 years to sort out before they start to run into real solvency issues around those pensions. Even when you start to approach solvency issues around your pension, that's where those pension payments become, you know, fully mandatory and that you are probably funding, you know, retiree health care or pension benefits on a as-you-go basis. And in that particular instance, the money has to go out the door, otherwise you default on retirees. So no states are quite at that point yet, but it wouldn't take much in terms of an additional shock on top of what we've already seen to get us very close to that point. To put in a plug for your colleagues on the other side of the firewall at Moody's, the Moody's rating people do regular tread water calculations and adjustments for pension liabilities and give you a reasonable idea of where states are reaching uh, toward reaching that horrible moment. Dan, I just want to ask you a question. Would you anticipate the states that have the best funded pension plans that aren't the Kentuckys of the world, but are the, the Oklahomas, the Oregons, the South Dakotas that are, that are really fairly well funded, would you anticipate those states to be more likely than others to lean upon uh, pension fund reserves to help get themselves through uh, coronavirus? That's a great question, Richard. I, I would think in those states that have been most watchful over their pensions, they're going to continue to be very watchful over their pensions. And I don't anticipate them really having to dip into those reserves unless they absolutely have to. And I think in a number of instances, there would be a pretty significant legal battle around trying to tap into those because a lot of those funds, as we're finding out in certain states, are protected under the Constitution. And there's a lot of, of red tape in terms of trying to get into those funds. So I don't see that happening. Uh, unless under the most dire of circumstances. Those funds are generally structured as trusts and are, would be, it would be very difficult to breach, but in this world, nothing is impossible. Right. I think more of the issue is shorting of the contributions 
which certainly has happened a lot over the last 20 years. States have generally gotten better at it, but it's going to be very tempting to cut those contributions to pensions in the next year or two. Yeah, that's a great point, Catherine. I think that and the aid to, to local governments we talked about earlier, those are going to be some of the first things on the chopping block when states look for places to cut. Yeah, it also took states and local governments a very long time to get out of problems that they created by shorting pension contributions during the last two recessions, Pennsylvania being a great example of that. Well, on that note, we'd love to continue the discussion, but we're getting up on the top of the hour. Everybody is busy, I am sure, and we don't want to take more time out of your day. Welcome the panelists. Thank you very much to Dan. Catherine, Rich, and Scott for a wonderful presentation. A couple of reminders. Number one, the, the documents we have posted, the Rainy Day Fund Strategies book and Dan's Stress Testing States will also be on our website at volkeralliance.org along with the recording of today's discussion. Uh, the Volker Alliance is at the center of an expert network of nine public universities, great public universities around the country, and other friends, as well as a number of our board members who are governor, former governors, mayors, state and local officials. We stand here to, to help informally or more formally. And if you need anything further, please call or email me. I'm wglasgow at volkeralliance.org. My colleague, uh, Nelia Stevens, ends S-T-E-P-H-E-N-S at volkeralliance.org. She can help direct your, direct your calls or your emails. And thank you a whole bunch for attending, and we'll see you next week. Good luck, stay well, and stay safe. You've been listening to Special Briefing brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. Every month, we bring you the latest intelligence, strategies, and trends affecting state and local government's finances in the wake of COVID-19 and how they're impacted by Washington's unprecedented response. Visit the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites to learn more, stay up to date, and dive deeper into these critical issues. And be sure to subscribe here or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so that you'll never miss an insight.